Welcome to One More Time, a wind band podcast. I'm Stephen Cohn, and today we're going to talk about some of the story traditions of band programs at historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs. Today's story was produced by myself. Today, among other stories, Scott Schwartz, the director of the Sousa Archive and Center for American Music, will tell us about the Sousa Band's South African tour. In this episode of From the Sousa Archives with Scott Schwartz, we are going to be talking about performances that Sousa had at universities and maybe some other performances as he had abroad. What, uh, what universities did Sousa perform at? Were any of them HBCUs, Scott? No. Regrettably, there, there were no Sousa Band performances at historically black colleges and universities. Um, the band did give 85 different concerts at universities and colleges across the United States between 1898 and 1930. The first would be the um, concert given at the University of Michigan, I'm sorry to say that, uh, U of M's University Hall on February 26, 1898. And um, in 1899, um, the band gave a performance at Converse College in Spartanburg, South Carolina on January 26th. So essentially, you know, playing for what we think it was kind of the ivory towers um, of both North and South America. Um, he, he also gave concerts, you know, at um, Indiana University. Um, the first one of that would have been March 16, 1900. Um, he gave a performance at Yale University, 1910, in Stanford University. Now, of the 85 concerts <coughs> the band gave, 71 of those performances occurred between 1920 and 1930. Essentially, 1920 is the the starting point for the American school band movement. And the first 1920 university concert took place at Colorado Agricultural College on December 5th. Um, he gives his first University of Illinois concert on October 23rd, 1921. And it's interesting, these are large schools. Um, and others would be Idaho's um, Technical Institute at Pocatello, Pocatello. Idaho um, in 1923, Ohio University in Athens um, in 24, and of course we have in 1925, um, November 4, um, or actually number, November 3 of 1925, it's an Indiana University, um, number 4, Purdue University, and the University of Illinois on November 5th, um, of course one day before his, um, his birthday, uh, which would have been November Six. Um, he moves on to you know Colorado. Um, he does the Winthrop College in Rock Hill, South Carolina. So he's playing in college um, teachers, um, colleges, normal schools. Um, he covers the full gambit, and as we start pushing into 1928-29, suddenly we see a whole growth in performances by the band at universities and colleges, largely because they had a ready body of students willing to spend money for a band, and of course, paying customers were always what Suze was looking for. Um, probably the most unique places to play, um, you know, Simmons 
Hopkins University in Abilene, Texas, um, Texas Tech um, College in Commerce. Um, that was actually 1928. Um, he played at Southern Illinois in 1930. Um, he returns frequently to do performances in the South. Um, we have the State Teachers College in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, which was also 1930. His last two performances, a North Carolina College for Women in Greensboro, North Carolina, on November 13th of 1930. And Columbia University in New York. In fact, it's the only time he plays for Columbia in November 22nd of that year. And that's basically it. So you get a kind of a sample of the types of institutions he played at. Absolutely. In addition to the performances that he had here in the United States, uh, touring and at these colleges and universities, um, I know, you know, in 1910, 1911, he had his first world tour, um, and I'm sure, um, tying in with our topic this month, that would have exposed the world to something that was uniquely American, the, the Sousa March. Could you talk a little bit about that tour and some of the audiences or unique places he may have experienced? <coughs> yes. Um, you know, the band's first and only world tour uh, took them on a 47,000-mile trip that lasted 352 days, and the band provided 372 concerts. So, you know, it was, it was a major undertaking. Um, the tour, you think it would go to many different countries, um, speaking many different languages, but that was not the case. Um, the tour really involved English-speaking countries, um, and its purpose was not to introduce audiences to Western culture and music, but rather to illustrate the excitement that could be generated from Sousa's new approach to American music and particular entertainment. You know, just his whole style was un-European. Probably the most interesting place the band um, spent their time um, was in South Africa. Um, they arrived in Cape Town on March 24, 1911, and stayed until April 21st. Um, they gave numerous concerts in Johannesburg, on Cape Town, Durban, Kimberley, and East London. So cities and towns are both large and small, and essentially, you know, getting a flavor for the, you know, the communities that they played for. Could you describe uh, just a little bit the type of audience that he was actually pl uh, playing for at these events? Well, that's a good question. Um, you, you would think that um, largely an American ensemble, largely white, would be playing for largely white audiences, but this was not the case in South Africa. In fact, actually, um, his audiences um, were very diverse and um, quite unique. Um, you know, Al Connect um, kept a, a detailed diary of his travels throughout the time, and for the March 24th entry um, for Cape Town, it's the first day there, that he writes, called at 5 o'clock to be passed by the quarantine health officer of the port, went back to bed again, was called at 7. Cape Town looked 
pretty this morning to eyes only accustomed to looking at the horizon, water, and a few seagulls. After breakfast, we disembarked at about 9 o'clock and were given a reception and a carriage drive up to the town hall, stopping at the Central Hotel. This town is a beauty, and the city hall on the same caliber. Small house for the matinee today. The weather was hot, and this is the fall of the year. Negroes were plentiful everywhere. So you're getting a sample of, you know, just what they're encountering. And of course, this is a very short entry. Thank you so much for providing this interesting story on Souza and his university performances as well as uh, information on his world tour specifically in South Africa. Um, you can clearly see Sousa's universal appeal throughout these experiences. Well, thank you, Anthony. Um, if anyone has questions, they're welcome to come visit the Sousa archives and um, learn more or just come by and listen to a great tune. Thank you. For this edition of Two Minute Rehearsal Techniques, we have Dr. Tanya Mitchell, the Assistant Director of Bands and Associate Director of Athletic Bands at the University of South Carolina. Before joining the faculty at USC, Dr. Mitchell served as the Interim Director of Bands at Valdosta State University. This topic is about building player leadership and player independence. So how can we get our players to make informed decisions about the music uh, to have opinions and be able to substantiate those opinions with what they see and hear in the music. Uh, ultimately, that's our task as a conductor, not just to make music, but to help people, usually our students, um, affect musical change and help the audience um, also have an informed decision about what's happening and make an impact with them. So we can do that by starting with small statements like, did you like what you just played? Or was the line connected? Uh, what's the high point of the phrase? What's the climax of the entire piece? Should this crescendo reach the same point as the next one, or are these treated differently? Um, is this a gradual increase in volume, or should the volume uh, exponentially increase as we get close to the climax? Um, and players are usually able to answer those questions because they have great ears. <laughs> um, so we're also trying to affect player connection their movement. Uh, sure, they should move with us, but it's way more effective if we encourage the players to move with each other, to move their bodies and their instruments to cue an entrance, to make eye contact with one another, to look across the ensemble uh, during a solo, to smile at one another as they're playing, to connect every single rehearsal in the music making process. Uh, soloists have a great ability to do this um, and when we work with them on the podium, we help guide them, we help make, help them make decisions about the music, and they in turn uh, start to have opinions that they can then share with other people who are making music in the ensemble. So our goal is to have the flute player be able to evaluate what the snare player heard or played, um, have the tuba player be able to hear and identify what the oboist did uh, so that all students are involved in the music making process so that they're all able to make decisions and have opinions, so that their leadership is not based on us telling them what to do so much, but more on their ability to hear for themselves and us to help guide them in that growth process. So to help us create trust 
not just between the conductor and the player, but between all of the players so that we can affect the music the most and make the impact the greatest for our audience. In honor of February being Black History Month, this month's story highlights the rich history of band programs at HBCUs, or historically black colleges and universities. I talked to several people associated with Bethune-Cookman University, an HBCU in Daytona Beach, Florida, including the current director of the Marching Wildcats, Mr. Donovan Wells, and the current director of the Penn State University Blue Band, Professor Gregory Drain. While both men are proud of what their alma mater and HBCUs have become, Bethune-Cookman also took the internet by storm in 2018 when the Marching Wildcats were featured in the Netflix original series, Marching Orders. For more on that experience and how it has affected the program, I talked to Mr. Wells. Like I tell my kids, when we were performing, we need to make the audience feel like they're in the wrong seats. The party is on the field. They need to be down there with us, you know. Hello, my name is Donovan Wells. I'm director of bands at Bethune-Cookman University in Daytona Beach, Florida. First of all, I, I'm a graduate of Bethune-Cookman. I did my undergraduate work here. I came in as a freshman in 1980 and graduated in 1984. I grew up in a little town, uh, Smithfield, Virginia, in the Hampton Roads area. Um, we're only 15, 20 to 25 minutes from Norfolk and Chesapeake and Hampton and all of that. So, uh, But we're on the other side of the river, so it's, it's kind of very rural over there. But uh, And I went back to uh, the Hampton Roads area. I taught in four different different school districts and, and I taught for 12 years public school I taught middle school high school and I taught band and I taught choir for three and um, I was assistant band director one year at uh, Hampton University on the Barney Smart and then um, Bethune-Cookman hired me to return as assistant director in 1996 and I was after my first year here I was promoted to uh, director in 1997. Being from the Virginia area, you know, I was looking at Norfolk State. Uh, I was looking at uh, Hampton University. Uh, I was looking at Howard University. They were they were the schools that I was looking at to uh, further my education because I wanted to be a music major. But uh, my high school band director said, "Look, uh, I got I was contacted by the band director at Bethune Cookman. I had never heard of Bethune Cookman." He sent the, back then, you didn't have the internet, you didn't have a VHS. They sent the reel to reel to our school and let me look at it. And the video that he sent me, the band was all men. The only woodwinds they had were saxophones and piccolos. Uh, clarinet players played soprano sax. And um, the band was so tight, sounded so good. It just blew me away. So, um, and then on top of it, being from Virginia, we have snow. And I said, man, going to Daytona Beach, <laughs> you don't have to deal with winter. <laughs> hey, man, that, you know, those were the two things that, that prompted me to come to Bethune.
My name is Gregory Drain. I'm the director of the Penn State Marching Band and Athletic Bands at Penn State University. Uh, I went to Bethune-Cookman University, uh, graduated in 2002, uh, came to graduate school at Penn State uh, to get my master's degree in music education. Uh, at the graduation, I became the assistant director at Penn State, uh, and I was the assistant director for 10 years, and I am now in my fourth year as the director. When I got into the Big Ten, uh, and especially since I came directly out of uh, undergrad uh, graduate program, honestly, I noticed more similarities than differences um, with regards to the high step, you know, and the marching style, uh, where it's, you know, essentially, you know, traditional, traditional marching with the high knee, you know, knees at 90 degree angles, you know, toes pointed and things like that and a different chair step or depending on the variations of that. But a lot of it is that, you know, high, high step. Um, uh, so, so in that way, you know, I saw a lot of similarities. So I saw more similarities than I actually saw, you know, differences with regards to the, um, to the, to the show. You know, um, but one of the differences was, you know, with uh, with historically black colleges and university bands, um, there is an emphasis on popular music uh, and an emphasis on playing, you know, the music that is current, that, that, you know, a new song may come out on the radio on Monday. A college is going to be playing that by Saturday, you know, on a ranger's going to write it and, and the band will be playing it. Uh, before the end of the week. So that's one of the bigger differences that I saw um, in regards to the halftime shows. Um, but, um, you know, halftime show is a halftime show. All bands do a show. Uh, so there's just a lot of similarities, uh, just some of the minor differences with regards to the different aspects of, of the show. Well, I think the biggest draw is the constant uh drive and excitement that those bands uh the hbcu bands bring uh, not only on the field but also in the stands you know where the stands performance during the game is just as is just as important uh, as the halftime show. So you have those two aspects of the band performing at the game. Um, but yeah, the 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 intensity, the passion uh, that is that's that's all that that seems to always be there. The high energy, and I think that's the biggest draw. And then in, in addition to that, you know, you have your uh, alumni band members and also alumni of the school and everybody takes pride in in their band you know so you have that that uh, camaraderie all the way through from from the students in in opposing bands to the opposing fans where at the end of the day everyone wants to say yeah our football team won and our band won uh, I think one of the biggest areas that has impacted you know, what I do and uh, here at Penn State um, is our stands performance. Uh, what we do, you know, at Penn State, you know, we have these different tunes that we play, uh, particularly during offensive drives, you know, where the band is playing. And, and then, you know, once the ball is getting ready to be snapped, we go into these chants, you know. And the and the crowd participates in those chants as well, you know, and that comes directly from my experiences 
you know, at, at HBCU, you know, whereas during my time, it wasn't uh, as big of a deal when the, if the band was playing while the ball has snapped. But those rules kind of quickly came in to, as uh, HBCU bands got larger and larger. Um, but, you know, the, the, the playing and, and chanting and singing and engaging the fans. Um, and so I, I think we do a pretty good job of that here at Penn State, but that comes directly, you know, from my experiences uh, at Bethune-Cookman. You know, I think we also need to be honest that uh, a number of those, the things that HBCU bans have been, been being applied, uh, you know, for decades, you know, <laughs> if, if they're being recognized or not, um, oftentimes not. But as always, you know, most band directors I know are just always looking for good ideas and don't care where they necessarily come from. Um, but I've, I've seen uh, influence of HBCU bands uh, at on on um, major universities for for decades, you know, throughout throughout my time of just being a bandsman. Um, so, um, I think we might be noticing a lot more of it now, maybe because we're paying more attention. But I think those influences have always have always been there. You know, with with you know with uh, historic programs such as uh, Florida A and M, uh, and and. Um, while renowned uh, Dr. Foster, you know, uh, and some of the innovations that he brought to the band world, you know, are are still being utilized by by bands, regardless, regardless uh, if they're HBCU band or not. But I think the other part that we have to acknowledge is, you know, we have YouTube now. You know? So there's a perform, someone performs, and then it's up on on the internet, you know, within the you know, within minutes after the performance is over. So whereas in the past you had to go to a game to go see a particular band. Um, and as a result, I think that has placed an even higher demand, higher uh, pressure on HBCU bands uh, since they, are, they do play, you know, the top 40 or some of the newest tunes. So that is something that I have seen emerge as a result of, you know, uh, of this video, video technology that's around today. You know, it was a blessing for us to be even considered for a show. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the undefeated, undisputed, Archie Wildcats of Bethune, Cookman University, the pride. Wildcats put on a show. Every time we show up, we show out. Light them up, light them up. Monotop music, let's all lose it. We've got commercials, Super Bowl, the movie, Drumline. We don't take anything but the best. Two things gonna happen. You gonna kick somebody's ass, or you gonna get your ass kicked. The audition process is for everyone every year. If you're not performance ready, you're off the field. You're gonna have fun, but it's a job. Step that way the first step! This is by far the hardest thing I've ever been a part of. If you feel like you're dying, go, please. Not on my watch. It's more than just a war feeling. It's a battle cry. <laughs> I didn't come here for school. I didn't come here for books. I just came to be in the band. You have to do it because you love it. Showtime, let's go now! We practice like we always win. 
we perform like we never lose. Now we doing it our way. Now we doing it our way. This is the toast of the underdogs. Now we doing it our way. The way it came about, um, um, now my good friend, the, the executive producer, Emily Bunnell, Emily uh, contacted me, I would believe it was four or five years ago, and said that, you know, they have been watching us online and they came to the heart of the battle of the bands and they were just blown away. So all of the HBC bands, HBCU bands are good, but they said there's something about Bethune-Cookman that separates you all from everyone else. And she said, well, we have an idea that we want to create a show or a documentary around your group and some of the things that the production company that she was working with uh, gigantic productions out of New York, they have done things for MTV and VH1 and a couple of other networks. So um, one thing I've learned about being in this business, you don't get too excited about things because you don't know if they're material. You don't get too high or too low, but uh, you do your due diligence and you work with people the best that you can. You know, and so we were able to come to terms. We did contracts, and next season they came in with with uh, they came in with their uh, team, and they recorded us. And um, after they recorded us, you know, we were all excited, and and it was about a year from the initial conversation to the recording. Then it was supposed to air a year later. Um, uh, there was a merger with uh, Warner Brothers and Warner Brothers, they, they were able to sell the show to Warner Brothers. There was a merger and with that merger, things got backed up for about a year. And so that's why it's coming out this year. Technically, we were anticipating it coming out last year. So when it didn't come out last year, we didn't know what format it was going to come out in. Uh, Warner Brothers had a new creation called Stage 13 with some other brand new shows that they had. And uh, and they were shows designed for the internet and for a, a medium like Netflix or Hulu, you know, or, or whatever. Warner Brothers, they sold, their, sold the viewing rights to Netflix and came to an agreement. And uh, we got a call probably three weeks before the show they aired that they were going to put it out this year. And I said, great. They said, well, they're going to put it out in about two and a half to three weeks. At that point in time, that's when I realized how huge Netflix was because they were telling me on the phone, you know, we had these conference calls and they were talking about, well, you know, it's worldwide. It's going to be in six, six languages and so forth. I said, wow, this is bigger than I anticipated, you know? So, um, and from there, you know, only thing that we've been doing right now is uh, holding on and going on for the ride. Uh, probably 20 requests for interviews. Uh, we, um, and, um, and these are either from radio stations, networks, uh, and from uh, internet shows, uh, newspapers. Uh, we have... Uh, the thing that, that that shocked me the most was yesterday I got an email from French TV from France. 
and they were impressed with what they saw. And they said that uh, the show really caught fire in France. And so they're going to send a crew to our first home game to view us in our element, what we do, and and uh, so that they could take it back to France. So that that was uh, that was mind blowing. That kind of confirmed for me how how large Netflix really is, you know. One thing I want people to come away with about the show is that, first of all, these kids are extremely talented. Second of all, they're extremely intelligent. And when you put those things together, they work hard. And when you, even if you just take the band performance out of it for a minute, you can see these young people demonstrating leadership. You can see them demonstrating the ability to work with others. You see them the, the ability to take to take a constructive criticism or to take commands from their peers. And that shows a great sign of maturity. And uh, so uh, and what we do is uh, it takes a lot of energy and time and it's tiring. So these kids give up a lot of their personal time uh, uh, to do what, what they do to represent the institution well. And they have pride about what they're doing. So I, I want people to understand that some, in the past, HBCU bands uh, in the past have may not have gotten a fair shake when it comes to being looked at by majority schools. You know, they said, well, they can dance and shake and do all of these gyrations and things, but they're not really that good of musicians. So I I, I hope that this show kind of puts that myth aside and people can see that uh, at Bethune-Cookman, these are top quality musicians that that go out there and they still can shake. Well, you know, I tell anyone, um, it's just like music in general. You know, there are so many art forms of music and just because one is everybody's not doing the same thing, or this one may have gone off and 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 created some things that the norm doesn't do, doesn't mean that it shouldn't be respected. Now, I look at it as when I was coming up, you know, it was R and B, pop music, and you know, classical artists kind of looked down at the at the R&B and the pop singers. And then rap came out. Rap came out when I was in high school, hip hop. And when I was in high school, and uh, I think I was a junior in high school when I first heard the Sugar Hill Gang. That was my first, that was my first rap song, you know, Hotel Motel Holiday Inn. That was my first rap song that I've ever heard. And, um, and I said to myself, I said, oh man, it don't it doesn't take any talent to do that. They they're singing over somebody else's track. They're just talking. I said, this ain't gonna being a musician, I said, this is not gonna last long. And, you know, now you look at it now and uh uh hip hop from a revenue standpoint, uh, they are a force in the music industry, man. They are forcing the music industry. Now, you know, some things come along with it, you know, that you got to eat along with it, but you can't ignore that they are a force in the industry and they have created a niche in, in, in society as far as music goes that people want. Because if people didn't want it, 
they couldn't make the money that they make. You know, so uh, uh, same thing I look at with with HBCU marching bands. You know, it's so many great college bands across the country. I mean, you can go from uh, USC to Texas to LSU to Ohio State to Michigan uh, to James Madison, Western Kentucky. You know, it's uh, Florida State. You can you can go anywhere. There are awesome bands all all around the country. So to say who's the best of the best, you know, that's that's usually attached to uh, which college you went to and, and are they from this conference or that conference. But uh, but for a small school like Bethune Cookman to to break into the market and do some of the things that we've done over the years. And we only have 4,000 students in the whole entire school to do some of the things that we've done. We don't take it for granted. We, we feel extremely honored and blessed. Uh, you know, in the 20, in the 21 years that I've been director bands, uh, we've been on every major network. We've done the Super Bowl special for MTV. We've done the Super Bowl in Tampa. We've done the, the Pro Bowl in uh, Miami. We played for all of the pro teams multiple times here in the state of Florida. We've done a commercial for Cadillac. This is a, we've done a TV show for ESPN. We've been on the Ellen DeGeneres show. We've done Monday Night Football special for NFL. You know, uh, we've uh, we've done the Christmas special for Walt Disney. You know, and and the list goes on and on and on. So, uh, for a small school in Daytona Beach, Florida, not a major city like New York or LA or or Chicago or Miami and um, for people to still call us and the phone rings and evidently we are doing something that people like to see. So it, it has been a, a phenomenal ride, man. It's been a phenomenal journey. I try to make sure that our kids understand that, you know, you had a special place and you're doing some special things. And don't take it for granted. Uh, other schools would love to have the opportunities that you have. So we don't take any opportunity for granted. We're extremely grateful. And we always try to bring our A game, whether it's a home game right here in Daytona or we're in L.A. Uh, filming the Cadillac commercial or doing the L.A. DeGeneres show, or whatever the case may be. Uh, you know, it's, it's, we try to bring our A game every time because you never know who's watching. Thank you for joining us on this episode. Since you're already here, please rate the podcast on iTunes or like or leave a comment on the post on our website. If you enjoyed the episode, spread the word by sharing the show through Facebook, helping more people listen to and enjoy the podcast. Please consider following us on iTunes to make sure you don't miss anything if you enjoyed today's show. If you want to stay current with Illinois bands between episodes, follow us on Facebook, join us on Instagram at Illinois underscore bands, or find us on Twitter at Illinois Bands. You can always check out our website for more information, www.bands.illinois.edu. The co-executive producers of today's show are Dr. Anthony Messina and Stephen Cohn, and the staff of the podcast includes co-host and occasional producer Daniel Dresser, producers Emmett O'Brien and Mary Allison Mahachek, 
who is also our script supervisor. The mixing of this episode and recording of segments is done by Zia Fox and Austin Forrest Feinberg. Of course, none of this would be possible without the Illinois band's faculty, Steven Peterson, director of bands, Linda Morehouse, senior associate director of bands, Beth Peterson, associate director of bands, and Barry Hauser, associate director of bands and director of athletic bands. Illinois Bands is part of the School of Music at the University of Illinois and the College of Fine and Applied Arts. We would like to thank Scott Schwartz, Dr. Tanya Mitchell, Gregory Drain, Mr. Donovan Wells, and the staff for their contributions to this episode. We hope you'll join us next month on One More Time.